Well, let, let, let's do this. Let's get into the podcast oh. and then we can do it. So we're just going to do, do you want to do your introduction first or do you, or do you want me to do mine on just who you are, what you're doing? What is it? Cause then I can, I can go first or I can go second. Cause I'm just going to edit, um, you know, chop up and edit. Well, for me, it's just another cocktail with Christy Jones. So if you want to start yours first and then we'll give three beats and I'll start mine and we'll jump into it. So welcome back. You're going to have to edit your own stuff. I'm not editing your podcast. I'm like super capable. I do all kinds of shit. I think that's, I think that's wonderful. You are listening to the Troycast on Cap Knowledge Network. Today, Troy is joined by Christy Jones, Manager of Leadership Development for the Maya Organization. Join them with part two of their conversations about leadership, work-life balance, and Bailey Wicks. So without delay, here are Troy and Christy. Glad to have you back for part two of our conversation with Christy Jones. Manager of Leadership Development for Myers. I, I hope you enjoyed part one. Uh, part two, we're gonna we're gonna pick up right where we left off. Um, we were talking about servant leadership, infinite thinking, and and about to get uh, uh, about to get Christie's uh, uh, view on those things. So, you know, is it? I'm a not case? a fan of servant leadership, by the way. Okay, I'm not why, a fan. Why, why, why not? What's your what's your uh, Bailey because Wick, it, since we're talking European cigarettes, I'll use, what's your Bailey Wick with servant leadership as we um, collective gasp from roughly 50% of my listeners, three of them? Well, I'll tell you what the bee in my bonnet is about servant leadership okay. or the burn my saddle for those folks out West. Um, it is inherent, now that I'm about to say this. How many gins? How many gins in? I'm not, I haven't had any gin at all today. I only drink whiskey. Oh, 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 yeah, okay, so whiskey. So it's more fighting than inappropriateness. I've spent a lot of time, so much time, in a therapist's office. And when I think about the servant leadership model, it is this anchoring of codependence. It says, I serve you, don't you like that? When really it's sort of a manipulation of um, power dynamic and um, language that is like, it's very clear. This person has more power in this situation than I do. It's like a parent saying, I'm just here to serve you. Well, yeah, like hell I am. I'm here to raise you to be a decent human being. I'll be damned if on my watch, you grow up to be an asshole without good judgment, right? So isn't that a a misunderstanding um, that a lot of people bring to the table with the idea of, inspirational leadership. You know, I've talked to plenty of people where it's like, I don't want to inspire anybody. I want to motivate them. And 
it's well, you don't really understand what inspirational leadership is if you think that there's right, yeah. If 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 you're you're dividing because you know motive. Okay, how do you motivate someone? You know, what is it you do to motivate them? And typically the the answer is, you know, I reward them for hitting goals. Well, okay, that's you're you're manipulating them. Exactly. You're, you're saying so that you're if, trying if to you, get if, them to do what you want them to do. Right. Got it. And, and then putting an incentive in place for it. You know, and it's it's the same thing where, you know. Oh, and by the way, your incentive is bigger than theirs. Correct. So actually, you have more to gain. Correct. That's messed up. Because I'm going to align my incentives, or I'm going to align your incentives with my incentives, <laughs> and and as long as that alignment happens, I, I'm willing to share stuff. You know, and and mm -hmm. that you know, from an idea of of actual servant leadership, where you have a a understanding of, you know, these are people, these are people with lives of their own. These are people who are depending on me to get them through where maybe servant leadership is the, is the wrong. Maybe you go back to, maybe you go back to really thinking about what the word leader means. I a, love... a leader is someone who is taking you through to a place and making sure you get there safely. So, I mean, that's sort of like the, the military definition, right? And Barry right. Miller has, they have this great language that I learned many years ago, actually from their podcast that I've adopted to, it, you're in the span of care, not, no, a, traditional HR would be like, you're in my span of control, like hell I am, who wants that? I worked for a guy who would, when I first started working for him, he kept saying, you know, what you really need to do, Christy, is you need to leverage that team for X, Y, Z. And I remember it just felt like gross, right? Like you don't actually, mm, I feel like I'm using a person, not their skills. That well, feels that, messed that up. Whole, that whole word of, of, of leverage, I mean, it's, it's you're using a tool, you're using exactly. them as a tool to move an object, you know, and, and you have, and there's a whole basis of this on where your, uh, where your fulcrum is, what are you going to use in your fulcrum? What are you going to use? And are your people going to be your fulcrum or are your people going to be your lever? And there's that, that whole debate on there. And then the other one is, or are your people going to be the object that you're moving up? And, you know, very, very interesting article a couple of years ago on, on you can define a leader by, you know, you draw the picture, you have a fulcrum, you have a lever and you have a rock and, you know, where would you say your people are? Where is your challenge? Where are your policies? And, you know, where they identify those, you know, typically tells you at least how they feel about their company, maybe not so much how they feel about their leadership style. I think this understanding of this is this is lost on people basically because I, I think there's this practice of I'm going to select you as a leader because you are the best doer. And what that means is for the, the person who's then promoted is great. I just need to be like the best doer and create really great doers to do whatever it is my boss tells me they need to do instead of these are these are human beings. I hate the term headcount in HR. And 
to me, it's heart count, right? Yeah. Why, why do we say like, if so the 20th anniversary is tomorrow of 9-11, right? And I was watching this on CNN today about um, the number of souls lost, right? We didn't say a body count. Why? Because that would be insensitive, lacking compassion, lacking empathy. But we're okay with that in where most people spend most of their lives. That's messed up. So when we think about this span of care in someone's heart, right? Like, what am I responsible for? I'm responsible for 15 lives, hearts, souls. Do I want to steal part of that by being an asshole every day? No, I don't. Do I want to challenge them? Do I want to say your greatest potential is in number one, making sure you do X, Y, Z? How do you want to achieve that? Because you're the one that's going to have to do it. And not like want to, like you get to pick like laissez-faire, but how can I also support you in that? Oh, you need to not take calls from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m.? because you got to get your kids off to school and on the bus doable. That's a small task because at nine o'clock at night, when I'm emailing you about, Hey, can I get that report or hold whatever? We also know, yeah, that's like a five minute thing. Got it. Right. But I think people lose the, people lose the humanity of leadership. And as a result, they use they lose their humanity. And when we're in a position where the power means more than the humanity or means more than the care, we are in a we are in a bad state. And as a business imperative, think about any business. What if you took the humanity out of your customer? Is that really what they want? Like for instance. Well, and and just if I can if I can get in there, I think that a lot of this idea of uh, digital retailing is to to do just that. Is you know we've gone ahead and taken the humanity out of our employees. Now the last problem we have, you know, if we can just get get this last problem fixed, how do we take the humanity out of our customers? How can we separate all of, 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 of human emotions and, and get it down to what the most measurable items are? And I want to I get your thoughts on that. But, but first, let's see if this little hobby of mine uh, can somehow end up turning a buck. We'll, uh, we'll be right back after this. Okay, so we're back. Uh, where we left off was a was a question for you about dehumanizing customers. So, so what's your thinking on that? I know that this, and people think that I'm ridiculous for a lot of reasons. This is just one of them. But when my kids ask Alexa for something, I make them say please or thank you. Now, they're flawed human beings on a million levels because they're 50% my genes and they're 50% their father's. They're not gonna be perfect. Um, but I don't want them to lose, like 
this automated voice, female, we make her British because I also want her to be a little bit like Mary Poppins. <laughs> she is at your beck and call. The least you can say is, please, thank you. And my son will tell me all the time, she doesn't care. Yeah, she doesn't. But you do, right? You're developing who you are as a human. And I think that is that is a serious critical loss from just in just like a an evolutionary universal sensibility. Um, and if we're going to do anything about that, it's got to be done through business because that is where we live, right? That's where most people, particularly in the Western world, spend their lives at their workplace, in the business that they're in. And so you've got to believe, well, I believe that a business can can only be a force for good in the lives of people through their leaders, but they do have to teach leaders how to do that because I don't think their leaders really have a model for that that's very good. How much do you think um, the idea of of reporting and, um, you know, big data, you know, things like that have had an impact on infinite thinking? It just, and and the reason I ask that is, you know, I I think about, uh, you know, McNamara during the Vietnam War, where you know, his idea was, you know, first is to measure whatever could be measured. Second, disregard that which can't be easily measured or given arbitrary value. The third, presume that, you know, what can't be measured really isn't important. And the fourth is to say what can't be measured really doesn't exist. And when you talk about, you know, what can you measure? Well, you can measure you hit your goal. You can measure you hit this many dollars. You measured you worked this many hours. And, you know, there's, there's been a lot said on, you know, how that's just a, a complete fallacy. And, you know, uh, you know, ultimately it, it, it leads to very bad outcomes, you know. So how, how much do you think this idea of big data, you know, human measurement, you know, reporting quota, how, how big of an impact has that had? It should have an impact on behavior. I don't think that it should have the impact it has today on reward. And I'll give you this example. Okay. I get up at 4.30 in the morning so that I can go downstairs and run and use my bike. I don't like it. But the reason I do that is because I'm incredibly disciplined to weigh my big ass every Friday. And I know that what I'm measuring is not going to be impacted unless I shift my behavior. There are things about my behavior I don't want to shift. I don't want to give up a gin and tonic or two on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Thursday, Monday, Monday. So instead, I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to go down to my gym and I'm going to work out. I'm not going to love it, but because my measurement is there, I'm using a metric that I want to improve, I do that. So that's that's from personal accountability and, and accountability has, 
has really become a huge buzzword. And, and I'll be the first to say most people get that different. You know, how, if you're going to consider values, beliefs, and behaviors, which are incredibly difficult to manage, you can manage actions. You can't really manage behaviors. A guy will, is making a phone no, but, call. But think What's about his behavior on that. Think about this though. And, and you come from this angle of sales, right? If, if every part of an organization was managed in the same way sales is managed, you wouldn't have anybody left in the company, right? Like the micromanagement of contacts and cold calling and shaming and hazing, like there's no way in the world your finance people would put up with that garbage, right? But we think we seem to think it's okay in sales, right? The other thing is this. When we are measuring something or we're driven by big data, what it doesn't tell us is the impact of how we got there. It's a lagging indicator. So let's say you have this just like gangbusters sales numbers for this month. And you have your top salesperson and they are killing it, right? But they are such an asshole that you lost your other five salespeople that were kind of like, they were B players, but they were consistent. Do you really want that? Now the numbers would say, yes, we want more of that. But if you actually look at how that's being achieved <laughs> through a human element, which requires observation, an interaction beyond the data, you realize that's not sustainable. So, you know, I think that's where it becomes the source of truth and the only source of truth when actually it's it's simply that. It's a data point. It tells us what, it doesn't tell us how, and it doesn't even come close to touching why. So, you know, my my position, uh, my position has always been. You know, and I, I think it was when they were uh, uh, decimalizing, boy, we keep running back to Europe, uh, decimalizing the currency in, uh, uh, in the UK. And somebody made a, a, a comment, when a, when a measurement becomes a goal, it ceases to function as a good measurement. And I've always seen data as pointing towards a direction as opposed to providing an answer. And I think too many times, it's looking at an average, looking at a sum, you know, looking at a, a, a numerator without looking at the denominator or vice versa. And, you know, how do we, you know, how do companies who want to be successful move away from this idea of data gives me answers rather than data should generate the questions? So, right, like this is, I'm going to go way back. Data is the canary. It's not the coal mine. Okay. And what people are saying, I think very often in business today, because we can get all of this big data, right? We can slice and dice it a million ways. That's the coal mine. Like hell it is, right? You actually have to go in and determine, here's the indicator, but what else is happening? Why is this, right? Why is the canary coming out of the coal mine, right? Should I should I check to see if there's bodies in there or should I just like, you know, abandon ship? So I think that is the issue. 
And if, if leaders are going to rely upon, I got the report, I got the data, I'm good. And I've worked for a lot of CHROs that would say, you show me the reporting. I can show you tons of reporting. And I can show you all dimensions of that reporting. At the end of the day, what do you want? Because the reporting tells you what you had. It doesn't tell you where you need to go next necessarily. That requires intuition and vision and research. Yeah, I, and, and, and I think it, 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 if you are you know, compiling, indexing data correctly, properly in the manner, because in, I say this all the time, you know, every report has an agenda to it. You know, the person designing that report, you know, we were in the car and we heard on the radio, you know, 52% of all Americans have been vaccinated, you know, and, and Emily, my wife asked, well, is that all eligible? Is that, you know, going all the way down to babies? And, you know, there's, there's lies, damn lies and statistics. And I think if, if you take a look at, okay, this data should generate questions. It should not give answers. I think that's the place to start. But I, I think most slow thinkers, you know, want a, a, a quick answer uh, because it fits well with them. And, and most fast thinkers are thinking, you know what, what created this? And that's the real struggle for people in that senior to mid uh, range where, hey, numbers don't lie. The data is telling us this. Yeah. And you're talking about things that we can't measure. And therefore, if we can't measure, it's unimportant or it even doesn't exist. You know, is there a measurement? Well, it was a long road to a little house. Is there a measurement for values, beliefs, and behaviors? Yes. You know, Please yeah. don't say culture. But inherently, that's curiosity, right? Do you have a leader that's curious about what could be or what was to, to even ask the question rather than jumping to the conclusion of this is why, this is what, and this is what we need to do. So we have this sort of crisis of imagination where we can't imagine what could this team be like? What could this business be like? Because there's a lot of work behind that, right? So if I imagine that, and that seems better, then I'm going to do some shit, potentially a lot of shit, and I might need to change, right? And that's even more scary um, for a lot of people. But it is this, I think, lack of curiosity in leadership that is a killer for a lot of, a lot of organizations, because they're just not even willing to uncover like, huh, that's what the data tells us. Is it really the conclusion that I'm thinking or do I need to ask some people? Um, this is why performance reviews. You were talking about the, the feedback loop, right? Yeah. So the feedback loop in many organizations for decades and decades and decades, right? I think it's, it's a relatively new approach in HR organizational development to take quarterly reviews or consistent performance conversations. Um, there've been one of two kind of conventional approaches and performance. The annual performance review, where you find out at the end of the year, uh, your boss hated you, you suck. Here's all the things you've done wrong. Um, you're not going to get fired maybe right now. And here's your two and a half percent raise. 
go in peace. The other side of that is every single day is a performance review and you're, you walk in thinking, I'm probably gonna get fired. Like today's the day. Yeah, I worked with a guy who his mantra was, uh, I come in, I come into work every day to earn my job back. You know, he truly believed, um, you know, that at, at one bad day was a difference between him and, uh, you know, gathering a box and, and moving out. I, I wanted to talk something a little bit about curiosity and, and why it's not yeah. sitting. In my experience, uh, curiosity has been typically labeled, and, and maybe you've had some experience like this or seen it, as um, you're making things too complicated, you have to dumb it down, you know, th this needs to be simple, you know, when you're questioning the premise and, and not accepting the answer, that that reaction, and it's a, it's a structural, cultural entity this person got oh, for sure. to the point that they got to in that company because they weren't curious <laughs> they hit the numbers right. they got to where it is and then a, a person with curiosity comes in and goes is that really what it is or is there more to it their reaction is going to be stop overcomplicating this you're too smart yes there's that piece or are you really that dumb? Right. So it's sort of like this latent. Do you not know how to play the game? Because politically curiosity in many cultures just does not play well. Oh, it's a killer. Um, it, it, it's an absolute killer. You know, when, because when it's about know. questioning authority versus, and I see this with my, I see this with my son, right? We're three weeks into school. And he says to me, he asked his teacher, why are we doing this? Right. That is a legit question, right? Why are we doing this? And I know, shit, I taught seventh grade. If a student said that to me and I was not confident in what I was teaching or, or I was not able to answer that, I'd pick up the phone and be like, hey, your kid's a little shit, right? Or I wouldn't say <laughs> that, but that's what I would mean. And which is kind of what his teacher did is emailed me and said, hey, he's challenging and he's disruptive. And I don't doubt that it was challenging and that it was disruptive, but I don't know if it was bad, right? I think entering into the dialogue of, why in the hell am I doing this? Is something that people don't do enough in adulthood, maybe because during childhood it was, I'm not going to question this because then that means I'm, there's something, means there's something wrong with me. But is, is it about the politics side of it where, because, you know, when you, when you really talk to these guys who are, they're not millionaires, they're billionaires. And almost every single one of them say what you need to be, a, the, the attribute that you need to be a great leader or to be a highly successful person, because those things are, are, are different. A great leader and a highly successful person those always don't, don't, you know, interlock sure. is, is curiosity. And yet curiosity is often taken as challenge. It's mm -hmm. often taken as disruption. And, and in some cases, flat out, you know, mutiny or dissent. And, you know, why is that? Why is it that a, a curious person, 
um, you know, is looked at as a internal disruptor? Do you want my big answer or my small answer? Well, let's start as you always should with the small end first. I, I, I think the small answer is people don't have practice doing any different. I think the big answer is most people do believe that the world is made up of one person and that's them. So anything that infiltrates what they thought was the thing to do, they take it very personally. That's where curiosity stops. We start to get curious when we say, huh, that person reacted in that way. I wonder why, right? Like how many times could you prevent an argument with your spouse if you would say, I noticed that you responded in this way and I'm just wondering why. And then you figure out, oh, there was this whole other thing that was happening with this person that had nothing to do with me. But we don't often go there. Instead, we're like, why are you such a bitch to me? Right? That may have been something that I said in my life. Like, <laughs> why are you, why are you being such a bitch to me? I'm not, right? What I'm doing is I'm acting out of a condition that I'm experiencing. It has nothing to do with you. But because we, we don't want to look at the world that maybe we don't have anything to do with it, that feels disempowering when actually it's freedom. So the freedom to say, I'm not responsible for making you happy. I'm not responsible for making you perform well in your job. I am responsible for creating conditions that you make the choices that are going to yield the outcome we both want. And that may be that it has very little to do with me, the way that you're acting. But if I'm curious, right, you, but you can't, you can't pick and choose that, right? You got to, you got to be that curious all the time. And that kind of sucks because then you have to, you have to put the effort into curiosity to say, wait a minute, can you help me understand this? And I know that's like, can you help me understand this? Like that's like the shittiest HR phrase ever. Because you know, like, can you help me understand this expense report? Um, then you know, like, just tell me where to find my cardboard box, uh, collect my personal effects, and be on my way. But that is, you know, that, you know, um, uh, help me understand, you know, those, those phrases um, have, have become so toxic mm -hmm. that actual conversation comes to an end. And, you know, when, when you look at what it takes for successful teams and, and they'll, they'll talk about trusting teams, but it's really about collaborative teams is teams that are able to collaborate, work together. And do you think that if you don't have a sense of curiosity that you can still have collaboration, does it make the collaboration harder? Is it, is it a, a, does curiosity have to exist as a start space to create collaboration or can, can collaboration happen without it? I think collaboration can happen without curiosity. What I think is sacrificed is trust. So if I'm, if I'm on a team, then we're trying to execute something, right? The goal is take this across the finish line 
I can have all kinds of angst about the way in which we journey towards that finish line. And I can be like held back by that or bring all sorts of baggage into this or not perform my best in it. And I can collaborate to get that done. But the next opportunity where I have an ask, hey, I noticed that in response to this element of the project, you responded in this way. I'm just wondering, how can I make that work better for you next time? And then you start to have meaningful trusting conversation as opposed to, you know, per my last email. Those are trust vacuums, right? Where trust cannot exist there. So yeah, sure, you can collaborate, you can get things done, but not not as fulfilling, maybe not as easily. Um as really having a trusting partnership where, you know, I've been on teams where you can say, look, I, I think we have gone in the wrong direction here. I know that our executive sponsor has given us this language or this direction. I'm really feeling conflicted about this because what I'm seeing from subject matter experts or what I'm seeing in my other observations, can we just approach this from a different angle? And then you get meaningful thought partnership. Then you get action that goes well beyond um, what you ever thought was possible. That's isn't, isn't, that, isn't that very difficult for a member of the team to do and yet easier for the leader of the team to do? And, 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 and by that, you know, if in fact a team has a propensity to end up going in the wrong direction, and by virtue of that, the curious member of the team is bringing this up completely valid, you know, makes total and complete sense. Yeah. yeah. Uh, does that person on the team not become labeled and the phrase gets used because this happens, don't bring up a problem without giving me a solution. Mm -hmm. And it's, well, let's start with the question first, you know, is this the right thing? I think this is off on the direction. And I think that silences team members over and over again, because they see the person who doesn't say something, well, they got promoted, they have tenure. And the person who does say, you know, even, even, even to the point where there are people who literally can fail upwards, mm -hmm. you know, the, the amount of people who have effectively and successfully failed upwards is astounding. And you look in their wake and you see all of these curious, conscientious, you know, people who want to contribute, people who want to collaborate, um, but they never figured out the secret sauce of just agree, move on. And ultimately, how well you're able to manage your boss and your boss's expectations that's the important piece. This is exactly the tipping point that I think we're at from a workplace and leadership standpoint, right? Because what you've just described is a very dysfunctional and toxic culture and work environment where the boss can have good ideas, but no one else can. Mm -hmm. um, where the, the boss holds all the information and we just are on a need to know basis. And what that does is it actually puts a lid on someone's potential 
So they don't bring their best to the job. Um, they don't bring kind of heart and soul to the job. Uh, they'll do enough not to get fired until they get another job. And if we're not really looking at that, right? Like um, the leader who, <laughs> and I worked for this guy for a long time, the leader who says, so have we thought about blah, 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 right? Like, and it's his idea. Like, well, I don't know. Clearly you have. So can we just cut to the chase here? Is that what you want us to do? Because I feel like that's where we're going to end up, right? And of course me, I can't keep my big mouth shut, right? So I would say that. So is that where you want? Because if you're just telling us what you want, we'll go do it. Well, no, no, I don't want to influence your opinions. Okay, well, you already have. So if that's really what you don't want to do, then you need to shut up. Nope. Isn't that, isn't that uh, uh, maintaining success through distance where you are able to, For sure. to not commit to any course of action? Therefore, the outcome, you're able to make the decision afterwards, whether you were a part of it or not. And you, you only know, associate with the good. Right. You know, it, it's, yeah. you know, success yeah. has many fathers. Failure is an orphan. And <laughs> isn't that reward yeah. over and over again? Because I'm going to, I'm going to stay just close enough that if in fact this is successful, I have enough time to run to the front of the parade, but I'm going to stay back far enough where if it explodes, I'm not going to be collateral damage. So you, you know, what you're describing is it's a leader with power and no courage. Why do we celebrate this in the military? It's because you get power because you've demonstrated courage, right? So that you can say, hmm, you might have a point or I'm gonna go first because I need to know what's really happening here and then we can execute, right? Like those sorts of things. There's such a... Um, scarcity of courage because um, th th if I have courage, it means I'm afraid of something. And that reality is I could fail, right? I could totally F this up. The best thing that ever happened in my career is I had a massive project, very public, huge visibility, game changer for our organization and it was a pile of shit because the only reason why I was spared in this is because I was the only person willing to fail that big because I think they thought if she's willing to fail that big maybe she actually like either she's delusional and we're afraid of her because she's gonna snap or if she actually has some talent that we just haven't tapped into yet. And we probably both those things were true. But I think it is, when you talk to people who have a level of insight and you ask them how they got it, it's because they failed at something. And what that says is, like, I have endured something that could take me down. And I think that level of endurance is something that cowardly leaders don't have. So they just insulate themselves from it. 
Um, they use their team as a human shield so that they don't, they're not looked at at the failure. And I think there are people at the C-suite or maybe senior level um, that don't want to deal with a cowardly leader because they do what they want, right? Like, you know, you're, you're a coward, great. You're not gonna push back on me. You're not gonna expose me when I'm doing something unethical because you're a backbone. I love that about you. And that is where we get toxic, horrible, life-wasting leaders. So we, uh, we started out talking about the Sacagawea dollar and have have been have been all over the board and you know there there's one thing that 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 I think I'm going to uh you know maybe in a couple of weeks have you back and and want to talk about some stuff that I saw on LinkedIn about um you know are you intimidated by a female boss I'd I'd like to get your feelings on that and I'd like to share you know some of my feelings on that but like as a female yeah. am I intimidated by a female boss I think it was just, just in general, general. It was just a general question, and and I think I'll, uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll do this again in in uh, in a cut in a couple of weeks because I'd I'd really love to get your perspective on it. But be, I want to talk about that, and I also want to talk about joy at work. Uh, what did she do now? <laughs> it's more like what she didn't do. Oh, that's the problem. Joy is always right. a problem, and when you have a joy and Karen working together, it's just terrible. So, you know, here it's been, it's, it's, we drew a breath and, and have talked for almost an hour and, and, uh, you know, I really appreciate everyone who stuck with us. This is the, uh, the, the first episode of the refitted, uh, Troy cast, uh, on cap knowledge network. Um, you know, I did want to get into some stuff and get your perspective on it. And I did want to wait until you at least had, had at least two of those whiskeys and Verners in you. I can get some more ice. I got plenty of time. I got all night. <laughs> so let's talk about our favorite subject, leadership lessons from each of our four grandparents. So who would, who, who would you like to start with first? From each of them? Yes. One, one lesson that you learned either, either a life lesson or a, uh, a leadership lesson from either Joe, Dorothy, Leo, or Helen. Now, now our, our, our grandparents, for those who are listening, have passed on. That's why we're not talking about our aunts and uncles um, uh, or our siblings or our parents. Um, so what uh, you, you share yours and then I'll, uh, I'll share mine. Well, if we want to go other generations, I'm not scared, but I can tell you the easy one is uh, Joe Graham. Anything can be ignored. <laughs> if it bothers you, you just don't recognize it. Simple as that. Very true. Uh, <laughs> okay, our grandpa Weber. Uh, <laughs> two things. Don't eat anyone else's potato chips. That is correct, because all potato chips at a party have drugs on them. And if you eat a potato chip at a party, you'll throw yourself out the window. And this is why I have never dated a man with a beard. Because what is the best thing to make 
people run screaming from you on Easter morning, cover yourself in shaving cream and run after all the children insisting on kissing them. Yes. So um, I think there's that. But I think also, I think Grandpa Weber's whole, um, like, it always seemed like he was just here for the ride, right? Like, there's going to be something else. Like, he was a housing inspector, right? So he he was always into like, hey, I don't know what I'm going to find in this house. Maybe a dead body. I don't know. Maybe I'll condemn it. Maybe not. Well, keep, and- keep in mind, this is the same man who faked his death during World War II <laughs> and then sent a letter back to Aunt Marie, tell mom and dad, but only mom and dad, I'm not dead. Because he was having such a good time over there. Well, he was selling he was selling horse meat in China for selling, um for cigarettes. Yes. And if 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 he wasn't dead, he had to go back to the States and his new wife. And it was only after his check stopped coming that he figured, well, wait a second. It's not so, it's not as fun over here anymore. Well, you know, there's, I don't doubt it. I'm sure it was a real drag at that point. Now I would say. You've, 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 you've handled Joe and you've handled Leo, uh, Dorothy and Helen. Dorothy. Don't give a fuck. (laughs) (laughs) You got a problem? Not mine. You don't like it? I do. I mean, I think that there was a, she had a freedom, like she had a freedom and attention with her that was kind of grand, I think. Um, that Because she, she could piss somebody off in the nicest, kindest way and didn't give a shit. Um, which is, I mean, she, and she grew up like she kind of had like this edgy class to her because she grew up scrappy, but then like I don't know, she always kind of had that air to me. Helen Weber, Helen Weber, when life gives you a floral pattern, you put that shit on everything. <laughs> Well, that and make sure that everything you own is covered in masking tape <laughs> that you sign everything <laughs> with masking tape and never under <laughs> any circumstances throw out rubber bands or, or anything else or, or anything else for that matter. Yes. I mean, if you have like an extra toilet, keep it because you never know. <laughs> but here, here, I, I think this is probably one of the things that I picked up maybe from her that I didn't appreciate till much later in my life, but use everything you've got, right? Like, cause she grew up with nothing mm-hmm. and she found learned to play the piano, learned to play the piano, put herself through nursing school, like got hooked up with her grandfather who was, you know, could, could, could snap an apple in half with her bare hands. Yes. Um, she was an emergency medical technician with a popsicle stick. Um, 
like she right she could do she could do damn near anything because she just put in like everything she had she used everything she had now the flip side of that is don't use it all at one time because right you use that up right you've got to find a way to fill your tank but I think it's being a good steward of everything you have and every opportunity that you encounter is probably the big lesson from her. But, you know, she was a, she could tell a story about anything. And and it didn't even have to have actually happened. Often it may have only happened in her mind. <laughs> yes. But she could always like hold an audience though. And oh, I don't absolutely. know if it was her or if it was the mesmerizing floral patterns. Um, but she so overall you... loved a floral pattern dress. And and masking tape with a with a sharpie. Sharpie. So my my minor kind of you know, when I was thinking of this, minor, minor kind of connected. You know, we talk about, you know, Grandma Weber just deciding to tell a story. Um, you know, I think she she presented them as real in the same way that that Jesus presented parables is that it's it's the message is real, even if this never actually happened. And she told the story of cutting through backyards and went and was was cutting behind the backyard of the richest man in town. And he was on his back porch crying. Uh, because he was so rich and we would drive by these big beautiful houses and she would always point out that all those people do is sit in those houses and just they come home and they cry night and day that it's the saddest thing in the world to have that that kind of money now they they weren't they weren't bad off they 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 were extremely well off they were a two-income family yeah, in the 50s correct and, and I, I, I remember she was telling that story for, oh, the 40th or 45th time. And uh, Grandpa Graham grabbed me and said, here's how this deal works. And it's really something I've, I've, I've really understood as I've gotten older. He says, money doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make you sad. The only thing money does is makes everything easier. It's easier to be happy. It's easier to be sad. It's easier to do good things. It's easier to do bad things. The only function money has is as a lubricant for what you want to do. And you have to make up the decision on that there. So that was the connection between them. Uh, for, uh, for Grandma Graham, yeah, it's I'm going to put the world's hottest jalapenos in my lasagna and just assume that everyone knows that traditional lasagna uh, comes with uh, jalapenos at the Scoville scale of somewhere upwards of 500,000, you know, and that was, that was just her, you know, she would. She was not afraid to have fun though, either. No. Like that, that was always, that was always front and center. Like if she wasn't having fun, she wasn't down with it. Like she had to find some element of it, of entertainment in it. Yeah. And, you know, from, from grandpa Weber, I think, I, I think the biggest thing that I learned and, and 
we could go on another two, three hours, you know, with, uh, with grandpa Weber, but you know, for him, it was, everything's always going to work out, mm -hmm. whatever it is, you know, the, you know, the, the, he's taking his grandkids on a vacation across the country and we break down in the middle of Utah for three days and it was the best part of the vacation, but it was because it's going to work out. We're I don't even know work. where we were headed. You could have told us we were headed there. Didn't matter. Yeah. 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 But that was, it was always this idea that it's going to work out wherever we're at. If we keep that in mind, you know, we're going to be fine as long as we don't need anyone else's potato chips. And I, and I think that that should be the big takeaway. So did, did you have fun doing this? Uh, tons of fun. Tons of fun. Tons of fun. I, I, I will definitely, I definitely want to have, uh, have you back here in a couple of weeks. Um, I really appreciate you kicking off this, uh, this, this, this reformatted, uh, reimagined uh, second, second season here. Um, anything uh, you want to say before, uh, before I let you go and, and finish off the rest of that, uh, that bottle of Irish whiskey? Well, there are a couple things. Of all my brothers, and I have several, you are undoubtedly the oldest. <laughs> and I do think um, I would also love for a recommendation of a signature cocktail that I could make just in honor of this. Thank you again. Thanks for coming back. Everyone who's listening, I hope you had as good of a time as we did this afternoon. Um, you know, please, please, please uh, share, subscribe. Uh, make sure you you catch every one of these uh, through this uh, through this second season. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, 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 the new Ted Lasso that's out. Christy, have, have you seen uh, have you seen Ted Lasso? No, because I have been uh, neck deep in Nine Perfect Strangers. Oh, it's a terrible show. So we're uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, about Ted Lasso and what uh, what Ted has to teach us uh, inadvertently about leadership. Uh, you know that uh, that first season that I watched was at the very least it was inspirational enough to 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 reimagine and and relaunch this uh, this podcast. We're going to have some more guests as we go through. So uh, thank you again, and uh, and just keep in mind, guys, the difference is you. So thank you very much. <laughs>
Cheers. We're out. See ya. That was fun. So much fun. Let's do it again. Anytime.